Extraordinary. Leader. Innovative. Integrity. Honest. Courageous. Curious. Thoughtful. Brave. Unafraid. There is a place where technology and art meet, where work and play are one and the same. When the threads of curiosity are pulled in this place, the spark of innovation ripples across industries. Those who make this place their home are giants, titans who pursue creative passion while leaving their mark. Creative. Flexible. Brilliant. Clever. Confident. They are courageous thought leaders set on changing the practice of dentistry and their corner of the world. More than the sum of their parts, we deconstruct the traits that bind these uncommon innovators. Humble, daring, disciplined, playful, principled, spontaneous. To discover what makes them contrary to ordinary, where we explore the extraordinary. Hi there, I'm Dr. Kim Cooch, host and founder at Carry Free. I'm fascinated by what makes the paradigm shifters, world shakers, and art makers tick. Let's embark on a journey. Extraordinary is a place where ordinary people choose to exist. Together, we will trek the peaks of possibility, illuminate the depths of resilience, and navigate the boundless landscape of innovation. To discover how some of the most innovative dentists and thought leaders unlocked their potential and became extraordinary. Happy New Year! And welcome to Contrary to Ordinary, the show where we explore the motivation, lives, and character of the innovators who see limitless potential around them, the people behind some of the largest paradigm shifts in the practice of dentistry and beyond. It's great to be back, and I'm looking forward to sharing a whole variety of new, extraordinary conversations with you in 2024. If you've listened for a while, you might have guessed that faith is very important to me and influences the way I navigate the world. Today, I'm speaking to someone who has had an unconventional path to finding God, Pastor Laura O'Brien. Laura is also an author. Her book, Hell on Wheels, charts her incredible journeys across the U.S., Europe, South America, and eventually back again. This is part one of my conversation with Laura, and we're going to focus on some of the extraordinary life events that led her to where she is today. Hers is a surprising tale with many twists and turns. I really hope you enjoy taking it all in. Laura is one of nine siblings and started her journey in the little town of Dallas, Oregon. As a tomboy in a conservative town, she didn't fit in all that well. Life seemed pretty normal until Laura's father passed away when she was a teenager. We did like a like a 180. Like my mom was the junior league lady who ran the March of Dimes and to you know, always had uh, dinner on the table. She worked full time. And then that's when she also decided that we should be able to bicycle across the country. And so we went from being like the junior league perfect family to crazy. You just think everything works one way and then there are no rules. They're right. gone. Right. Yeah, and your parent who's still around isn't functioning, so you're like, become the adult. Right. And it's hard. It is hard, right? Yeah. To be forced into that abruptly. And at the same point in time, I can also see being a single parent with nine kids. Yeah, is crazy. Is crazy. Yeah. You know, know, having three would be hard, but uh, I think my mom, for like a year, she checked out for... You can see this happen. It helps me in ministry. I understand exactly how a mom or a a spouse who's just lost a loved one, I'm like, don't make a decision for a year. 
And you guys rode across the country. From Dallas, Oregon to New York City. That's pretty much coast to coast. The furthest we had biked from Dallas before we did this is one, maybe twice, we rode to Independence, which is 10 miles each direction. Uh Got a thing at Taylor's Drug Store, got a soda, got back on our bikes and rode home. So you, how many days? I mean, how long did that take? Eight weeks. Eight weeks. But I will say for all our craziness, it was the best thing for all of us Uh because we first found out we were like really tough, Mm -hmm. like a lot tougher than we ever gave ourselves credit. Um, And because we all think we're six feet tall, but we're all about five foot two. But we did find out that we can get through a lot. We also figured out that we can do a lot together. We didn't have to like each other. Right. But we had to support each other. And we never went in a straight line ever. Everything was a zigzag because my mom wanted to see sites, right. but they're not like a No, they're not line. linear. Yeah, there's no, no yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, uh, she wanted to go to Yellowstone. So you have say. to climb up to Yellowstone. Yeah, yeah. Then she wanted to see Mount Rushmore. So then you got to go down to Mount right, Rushmore. Right. Then she wanted to go see Spring, uh, oh, she wanted to go to Missouri. Right. So then we got to go down to Missouri. Imagine having no experience of cycling long distances and then deciding to take your nine kids across the country on an epic trip like this one. They only camped and never stayed in hotels. Of course, they had never even set up a tent before. It just sounds bonkers, even though they got through it in the end. Going through a major life change can really cloud your judgment. Most people know what it's like to live in that haze of grief when you don't know if you're coming or going. I think Laura's advice that you shouldn't make any major life decisions for at least a year after a loss makes a lot of sense. When Jesus delivered his Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He tells us that faith in dark times can provide comfort, something that many people of all religious persuasions cherish deeply. Laura decided in middle school that she wasn't going to be a grade-A student. Some of her brothers and sisters went to college, but she had other plans. I've always been the one that's like, I'm going to do the opposite. I knew it used to wind my parents up. Right. Like I just didn't try, right? (laughs) Right. And uh, and I had a plan— from eighth grade Uh that I was only going to barely get through high school. And it was a concrete plan because we were sitting in the auditorium at Lacreal Middle School or junior high. And the counselor gets up and says, now, before you go to high school, you need to know a few things. And one is if you get more than four Fs, you can't graduate. And I heard you can get four Fs and still graduate. Right. So, right. <laughs> and so I figured, and I even knew which, what I was going to fail. I had it all mapped out. So this is like between my junior year and my senior year that we biked. And my plan was going great. I had a 191 grade point average. I flunked you my were right three. In I there. was right where I wanted to be. Right. I, my mom was in a panic. I wasn't going to graduate. It was constant. My mom's boss's cousins lived in Alexandria. Uh-huh. And that was the first house we stayed at. We got there and he drove us into Washington, D.C. Uh-huh. that night. So he drove us through Georgetown. And I saw all these guys waiting to get into the to the bars, right? Uh-huh. And I thought, 
I, right. I really want to go there. And I knew that there's no way I was going to college. It wasn't going to happen. Right. Right. And then he parked behind uh, the Lincoln Memorial and we climbed up the Lincoln Memorial and I went and read Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream. Right. I didn't care too much about the memorial. It's too big. It, it, it's, 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 it's just big. too big. It's, it's big. But yeah. Martin Luther King always was special for me. And uh -huh. so I went and read his I Have a Dream speech. And then I thought, well, I could have a dream. Maybe it'll happen. And so that was always kind of back in my head that this is where I wanted to be. This is where I wanted to go. Uh -huh. And the reason for what I was telling you earlier about the book, it ends in 1988 because that's when I was on a plane to go live in Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. And I ended up graduating from George Washington University. Wow. So, yeah. So that's why it's what I, the book I was telling you about. It starts the it. night I found out our dad died. Right. And it ends with when I'm on a plane to go to D.C. Right. So yeah. let's back up just a second. Okay. So you've written a book. The book's called, um, actually it's Hope on Wheels, but it, Hope's written under hell and hell's scratched, right, scratched out. out. <laughs> yeah, so it's hell on wheels. <laughs> okay. It starts with um, the morning I found out my dad died, which right. was about five o'clock in the morning. He'd been in a coma for two weeks Oh wow. um, up at Providence Hospital. And we knew he had had a triple bypass surgery. And when they cut him open, all the plaque went through a system, basically poisoned you yeah, yeah. and you slowly basically, died. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, here's my mother with nine children and he was only 46. He was a young guy, oh, you yeah. know, he wasn't very old. Yeah. And my mom was 45 and uh, I had just turned 16. And so then it goes on to, to explain how the idea of the bike trip came about, right. um, the bike trip itself, and then coming back and nothing is harder than seeing the world and opportunity and going back to your very little conservative town where you're about ready to flunk out of high school right. and you feel trapped. Yeah. So I made really poor choices during that time. But then a good, good friend of mine from high school, Damaris Dickerson, she came to me after we graduated. She was kind of lost too. Her parents were fundamentalist, charismatic missionaries in Brazil. And she'd been back and forth. And we were both kind of similar. I mean, even though she was like the prom queen and everything else, and right. I, was a, I was a wreck, we, we always stayed kind of tight. And uh -huh. uh, she came to me and she goes, do you want to go to Brazil? And I said, yes. <laughs> you know, right. I want to get yeah. out of Dallas. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, exactly. And uh, she goes, okay, um, this was like March, April. She was, she was home for her spring break. And she goes, let's go after Christmas. Uh -huh. I said, perfect. So I went and got a job at the cannery, worked my ass off to get as much money as I could get. We got our plane tickets we, we, and we went. And I remember my mom looking at me and said, um, I'll let you go. And I remember looking at her saying, I ain't asking. I, right. I am gone. So we spent three months there. Uh -huh. And I was introduced to a very different form of Christianity than I was comfortable with uh -huh. or would ad ever adopt. But I was also in Brazil where they speak Portuguese. Right. So every time I turned around, Damaris would go, did you feel the spirit? They're speaking in tongues and everything. Oh, right. and I'm like, oh my God. So um, I'm like, no, because I don't even understand what they're saying. Right. Right? right. And then for carnival, I had to go to this Christian revival thing in the middle of the jungle, which was a whole different thing in and of itself. So I wasn't having a good vibe about Jesus at this point uh -huh. at all. Right. I didn't like what I was seeing. It was very authoritarian, very patriarchal. Definitely not mainstream. No. 
No, right. it wasn't. I, I don't know another word for it. It's just kind, it's kind of ugly uh -huh. in its own way. The, right. the, there was a hierarchy, and if you were the the white American, then you were the top, and right. then uh, it, I didn't like it. I did meet some really nice people on the side too, but uh -huh. uh, so. But then. Um, I, we were at this place in Rio. We were about ready to fly home. It was Christmas. It was Easter morning. Uh -huh. And um, she, Damaris, she'd been pushing Jesus, man. She was wanting me to accept Jesus. As, right. And I'm like, it ain't going to happen. And um, so she read, she goes, I want to read the Easter story for Matthew. And I'm like, okay, this is your last shot. We're flying home right. tomorrow. Right. Go for it, buddy. Hit me with your best shot. Yeah, exactly. right? And uh, so she read it. And then I listened, and we were at this crappy hotel. Like, we had to pay for the sheets <laughs> kind of oh, place. Oh, boy. Okay. So, um, but by then, we were pretty hardcore travelers. We oh, didn't yeah. care. And she closed the Bible, and she goes, I didn't know that. I go, you didn't know what? And it was about, in Matthew, it says that the, um, the leaders of the Jews paid the guards not to say that the tomb was empty and, uh, and to lie about it. You know, so I've been hit with the Bible for three months. I said, have you ever read it? And she goes, well, no. I said, you've never read the Bible? And she's like, well, not all of it. Right. And then I'm like, well, maybe they don't know what they're talking about. Right. And so it was like a little crack. Right. Right. Yeah. When I got home after that, I found out we were bicycling through Europe. I, I didn't okay. know for a fact that we were doing this, okay. but we were. Right, right. So I got home and uh, two months later, three of my siblings were on a plane to go to Amsterdam and we biked for three months through Europe with no money. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, and, but just you and three siblings, like yeah. you're not your mom. No. And, okay. No, that was a whole different thing. That was the life changer. Laura's experience in Brazil showed her a kind of faith she didn't want. It seemed silly to her that her friend hadn't read the whole Bible, but was still so immersed in this particular type of Christianity. St. Augustine, possibly one of Christianity's most prolific thinkers, may have began his journey with reading one passage of the Bible. But the wisdom he sought led him to read the text from back to front. This was something that he later wrote about preaching the importance of the continuous seeking of knowledge in the scripture. I think that kind of big picture thinking is common in extraordinary people. Eventually, Laura would become very familiar with the Bible in its entirety. But you're probably now wondering, what happened to her in Amsterdam that was so life-changing? Well, we had to put the bikes together at Schiphol Airport. Right, right. Um, which we didn't think through real well. When you're jet-lagged, don't try to, to assemble, assemble bike. four bikes. <laughs> you are going to get into the biggest fights. <laughs> oh and then, you know, we, we'd heard things about Amsterdam, but there was no oh. internet then. There was no Rick Steves. Oh, right, there was yeah. no, no idea. My grandma had been there and she'd say, well, that red light district is, you know, whatever. Yeah. So my brothers who were 17 and 16 at the time were like, yeah, we're going to the red light district. I'm like, no, we're not. So uh, we get the bikes together. We end up in the center of Amsterdam uh -huh. trying to find a place to sleep. And there was this place called Bob's Youth Hostel. Uh -huh. And um, Bob is a youth hostel, but he's also a drug dealer. Oh, and so, oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah. So my brother Tom's like, yeah, I think we should stay there. And I'm looking at him like, no, 
No. And my, even Paul's like, the younger one's like, Tom, you're an idiot. We're not staying there. So uh, we ended up at a proper youth hostel. And then we went from Amsterdam into Germany, to Germany, to Switzerland, from Switzerland to Italy, from Italy to France. It was crazy because we, we didn't have enough money. So we could either eat or we could camp, but we mm-hmm. couldn't do both. Okay. So we decided we would eat. And then we went and knocked on farmers' doors and see if we could camp in their place. And they always let us. Right. So we it, we made it work, yeah. right? A lot of stuff went down on that trip because the little boys weren't so little. Yeah. And they were hungry and they would shoplift. And then one of them got arrested in Switzerland. Oh, oh wow. Okay. Okay. I will share this story because this one's funny. Okay. So we find out in Germany that they've been doing it, but they don't share Right. Any of the food or share, no. the, st- or share the story? The food. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. There's like me and my sister are like starving because there right. are two teenage boys. They need to eat. So we've cut back on our food so they can eat more. Every time we go into a grocery store, we kind of noticed they disappeared. And then when they get on their bikes, they would hang way, way back. And they are always way, way ahead of us. Right. I'm like, something's weird, right? And we get to this really cool little village in the middle of the Black Hills. And and I go to take a picture in front of this castle and my brother's holding a bag of wafer cookies. I'm like, what are you doing? Where did you get that? And he's like, out of my sweatpants, you know? Right, right. (laughs) And that's when we found out. So we get to outside of Zurich and my mom was wiring us some money. And we said to him, please we're going to go in and get some food. We have enough money to, to camp in Zurich. We have enough money to eat. Don't steal anything. He's like, what do you think? I'm stupid. And I'm right. like, yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. And he has a New York Yankees t-shirt on, a New York Yankees baseball cap. He's about six foot tall, blonde. He couldn't be more American. We're in cargo shorts, right? Right, yeah. You stick out like a sore freaking yeah, thumb, yeah, true, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other one... Paul looks Italian, so he blends in. The other one's an idiot. So I said, ironically, I'll watch the bikes while you guys go in. And about 10 minutes later, my little brother Paul comes out and he goes, Laura, Laura, come here. And I'm like, what? And I go around the side and he has pulling ham and cheese out of his armpits. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he goes, that idiot, he got arrested. For shoplifting, I told them not to do it. I'm like looking at a pile, right? right. I'm like, yeah, but what are you doing? Right. So, <laughs> right. so I go in and uh, he, I said, watch, just watch the bikes. I, I, I'm going to go in and they point me to the break room or the manager's right. room in. And so I go in there and my sister Linda's having a conniption. Tom's in a separate room. Two cops have walked in, right? And she decides the best way to get out of this situation is there's a can of Franks on top of a vending machine. Uh-huh. She takes all the Franks out of the vending machine to pay for Tom's ill-gotten gains. So we have all these Franks that she just stole, <laughs> all this food Paul stole, whatever we bought, like legally, and yeah. they take him to the um, police station and they bring the prosecutor in and they threaten to send him home and everything. And finally, they, he, they let him leave with a warning. And then we go down the road and then we're like about 40 francs to the good and uh-huh. all the food that Paul stole. And yeah, and that in a nutshell is how the whole trip went. Oh and it gosh. ended when I got hit by a motorcycle and phrase you threats. Hi, Contrary to Ordinary Listeners. 
We're going to take a short break from this conversation for our segment, Questions with Dr. Kim. Don't go anywhere. In this segment, I'll answer a listener's questions about their dental health. If you have a question about your dental health that you want answered, then send it to podcast at carryfree.com. That's C-A-R-I-F-R-E-E.com and add questions with Dr. Kim in the subject line. If your question gets read out on the show, then we'll send you a small gift to say thanks for checking in. This week's question reads, Hi Kim, I think I do a good job looking after my teeth and gums, but I still occasionally get cavities. Both of my parents have had problems with their oral health for as long as I can remember. So I wonder, have they passed this on to me? Thank you so much, and I love the show. Well, thanks so much for the question, and I'm sorry you're having problems despite your best efforts. It's true that genetics can play a role in your risk of developing cavities. While oral health is influenced by a combination of genetic and environmental factors, the most common risk factors for cavities are lack of saliva, poor eating habits, poor oral hygiene, and then genetics. Research has identified a number of genes that influence your risk for cavities, and while we can't test them yet specifically, it's important to be aware of their potential role in your dental health. And if you, dear listener, would like more information on all things dental, then head to carryfree.com, C-A-R-I-F-R-E-E.com, where we've got more resources on dental health and our line of carry-free products that can help you keep a healthy smile. But right now, let's get back to the conversation. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, we had to learn to survive. We had to be right. savvy. We also had to learn to be nice to people. We spent a week in a commune in the north of Italy because they uh -huh. were super nice. Uh -huh. But it was at the Vatican when I had like the first glimpse that Jesus was a lot different than what my friend had kept pushing on me. Linda and I, I don't know if you've been in the Vatican, but you have to I wear have, pants. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We only had two pairs of Levi's between all four of us. Right. So, so you took turns. Yeah. <laughs> and we went like behind St. Peter's and oh, changed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so Linda and I went in first, and Linda went to go get the tickets to the Sistine Chapel, and I was walking around the center, and I uh, walked around the corner, and I saw the Piata. And that was the first glimpse of what the passion really is and what grace really is, and it, it was an experience. It wasn't a preaching moment. It was just beauty and sorrow and everything in one second. And it lasted maybe like that. And then my sister came up and said, okay, we got to go. And, and that stayed with me forever. Wow. And that was the first step to understanding Jesus the way I understand him today. It wasn't because somebody dunked me in a river or somebody told me I had to do something or I was going to go to hell. It was beautiful. You've heard me preach. This is something that's much more deeper than just mere words. Yeah. So, but then I came home and this is how I get back to DC. We got, I got home and my mom's like, well, Laura, you have two choices. You can go to school or you can get a job. I said, okay, that, that works. They all went to back to school. My mom 
teaches and uh-huh. so all the so I'm I'm the only one at home and I opened up the Oregonian and it said young couple looking for a nanny for their overactive four year old in Washington DC. Uh-huh. I'm like Done. So I called this lady in Portland and she says, Well, could you come and meet me at the Twiller Curves uh, Burger King next week? Yep, I can do that. So my friend Tracy, who's, um, we, we used to get in a lot of trouble together, drove me up there because she wanted to see what was going on. And um, we're sitting at the Twiller Gur- Curves Burger, Burger King, King yeah. right across yeah. from Fred Myers. Yeah. And um, she goes, Well, how are you going to know who it is? And this little Jaguar convertible pulls in. And I said, I have a feeling it's her. Right. Yeah. And so she comes in and her name is Nancy and she talks to me and she looks at my resume and she goes, well, I want you to come back to my house and I want you to talk to my daughter. And I said, okay, let's do that. So we follow her up there and we're in the West Hills. So she calls her daughter and I talk to the daughter and everything. And then I'm told the family's Ron Wyden. So I'm like, okay, uh, that's different. Right, and I'm thinking that'd be kind of that'd be cool. I I can do this, and uh, and two weeks later I was living in D.C. Wow, yeah, and that's where the book ends. And he got me into George Washington. University. Okay, so it was who you know. Yes and no. Yeah, because later after I became a pastor, he called me. Um, it's the last time I ever spoke to him in person, and he said, "I want you to know, I may have got you in." But everything you did after that, you did it. Right. You did it all on your own. So don't let anybody tell you somebody gave you something that you didn't earn. Right. He said, I knew you could do it, but you could have also wasted it. And you didn't. So take that. And if anybody says it's because of who you knew, tell them no. Partly. Yeah. There's a little part of it that is. But I needed that little part. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the nudge. I needed that little nudge. But what they did when I was a nanny for him. Uh, so how long were you a nanny then? Six years. Oh, wow. On okay. and off. Two straight years. Um, right. It was hilarious because they did, Adam was a, a little brat, uh, even at four and now at 44. He's special. But I was there for like a six weeks and they sat me down and I'm thinking I'm in trouble, right? right. And uh, they go, well, we have something we have to tell you. And this is, you know, this is completely up to you, whether you want to stay or you want to go. I said, okay. And she goes, well, I'm pregnant. I said, oh my God. Do you know how many times I've had to listen to that? She goes, well, you're okay with an infant? I said, yeah. Yeah, from family of nine. nine and you're right. on the fifth of yeah. nine. How many yeah, infants right. do you think I've had yeah, to live right. with? So then the second year... They both sat me down and they said, Laura, why are you doing this? And I said, what? She, he said, why are you a nanny? This is, you said, you're 21 years old now. Most people your age are graduating. And I said, yeah, but I, I took a different career path. And I was like, uh, Laura, you don't have a career. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. You're yeah. right. So they sent me to American University for a semester first uh-huh. to see if I could succeed. And mm-hmm. then I did well because it was their money and I felt obligated. Um, and that's how it, it went. Right, how that kind of... Yeah, so whether you like his politics or not is not anything. No, it's, it's, it's totally, either, totally either, irrelevant. Yeah, yeah, because he's a thoroughly decent human. Really a good person. He's yeah. a very good person. Yeah. With really bad sense of direction, but that's a whole other thing. If you're in D.C., go figure that you'd run into somebody in politics at one time or another. Ron never made Laura feel like an employee and was kind of a mentor to her. 
He ended up being one of the many that guided Laura throughout her extraordinary life. Make sure you listen to part two of my conversation with Laura to find out all about them. There was one piece of advice that Ron gave to Laura that really stuck with her. One day I saw we were outside the Senate building and all these, they look like aides, you know, employees, and they were very busy and very professional. And I said, what a load of jackasses. And he turned around and he said, Laura, remember, you need to take your job seriously, but never take yourself too serious. Right. And that was probably the best advice he ever gave me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You you take what you do serious, but once it becomes about you, then you need to probably back up and... Life will give you a humility pill right, right, real exactly. quick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the karma bus there. They, you, it you it does kind of go, goes, yeah. it is a merry-go-round. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're going to get smacked. So when you were going to George Washington University then, is that when you made the decision for the seminary? I mean, where no, did that come from? No, no, from? no, no. Well, first to be a Christian had to come uh-huh. because, you know, they're, they're Jewish, you know. So, oh, right. so in one year, I went from this charismatic, crazy thing in the middle of the jungle to, you know, Happy Hanukkah, yeah, so, yeah. It, which was great, really was. I really appreciated being able to see that and experience it for all it is. But what happened is I was almost ready to graduate from GW and I needed three more credits in history. And so there was a class called The Life and Thought of Jesus. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I thought, well, gosh, he only lived 33 years, so it can't be all that long to study, right? So I took the class with a friend of mine who was supposed to take it with me, and she didn't. And at GW, they don't have classes on Friday normally. So your party night is Thursday night. Thursday night, right? okay, right. And the summer before, I lived in the Sigma New house. Me and a friend rented a room from him, and so we got to be good friends with the Sigma News. And they were having a party the first Thursday night, the spring semester started, and he said, hey, this is my friend Greg, goes, come to the party and then just sleep on my floor. And I said, okay, but I got to be at a class at like 8.30 in the morning. And so um, he's like, yeah, but it's just across the street. So I said, okay. So, I mean, still in the clothes I was in the night before, very hungover. Uh-huh. And I, all I needed for that class was a Bible, which I did not own. And so I ran down to Crown Books, which is this cheap bookstore. Mm-hmm. So I went and got a drip coffee, trying everything. Got my night. I got a 99 cents King James paperback Bible, right. right? And I go into this classroom and all these people, there's probably about 12, 15, and they're very preppy. They have their Bibles in little zip right. rippers. Right, and I'm right, like, yeah. oh man, this, this is going to be bad. This is bad. So I sit clear back in Bell Hall in this classroom, I put my feet up, kind of close my eyes. And this lady comes in and she wants to know why we're there. Right. And uh, they all said, well, I want to have a better journey and relationship with my personal savior. Then I'm thinking this this is going to be really bad. <laughs> this, this is going to be a long, long semester. Yeah, right. And so she gets back to me because I'm the last. And he, she goes, now, she looks at her little thing. Now, Laura, why are you here? And I said, well, I'm a history major and 33 years isn't that long to study. And I thought it was pretty funny. Right. She right. did not. And um, yeah. And it was, they all looked at me like, <gasps> and I'm like, okay, he was a historical figure who lived 33 years. Yeah, Give exactly. me a break. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But what happened was, I had to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Mm-hmm. That was our text. It wasn't to 
It was just to know the context. And then there was another book we read, but through it, she would give us assignments where it was just a passage. And then you had to do a historical critical paper on it and then present it. Uh And it always just clicked. And there was a moment when I read John where I went, oh, this is real. Yeah. And that was, and up till then I was going to law school. Okay. And then I wasn't. Right. Right. (laughs) And then uh, my friend Damaris became a flight attendant and lived. So we stayed in contact and she lived in the DC area. Oh, wow. And so um, she goes, I'll tell you what, Laura, why don't you go work in this orphanage that we had gone to visit for a year and I'll pay you and figure out what you want to do. Right. I said, okay. And, and I did it, but that threw everybody in for a loop because I didn't become what I had always intended. Laura found her faith unconventionally through higher education. Ron had wanted Laura to go to law school, but she wasn't interested in following in his footsteps. When she finished up with the Widens, she floated back to Oregon and then on to two different orphanages in Brazil. All this before the age of 30. There's something to be said for welcoming change in your life. Maybe those early experiences of cycling long distances with little practice or know-how created an extraordinary lifelong resilience in her. When she got back from Brazil, she became a member of her local Lutheran church, and that's where her journey to becoming a pastor was truly set in motion. But my pastor goes, and why do you do that? Why don't you apply to go to seminary? And I'm like, okay. You know, I didn't have anything else to do. I didn't know. Right. I didn't even know I wanted to do it. I just thought, well, I could get my master's. And then if I want to do something else with that, like teach or something, then that's a good launch pad. Right. But um, so that's how I ended up in at seminary. And it was a tough time. I quit drinking. I quit doing things, you know, and you'd have to reorient your life completely. Yeah. And I was really cognizant. I didn't want to be like a judgmental Christian. I've always felt judged, you know, and so you're just kind of navigating how you're going to live this faith life. Uh So what seminary, where'd you go to? I went to Dubuque, Iowa, and it was called Wartburg Theological Seminary, and it's a castle. Okay. Oh, wow. And it's uh, it's beautiful. Uh So I was there for four years. It's a four-year program. It's not like Bible school. Yeah. Right. You have to go be a chaplain for a summer. You have to learn Greek. You have to learn Hebrew. You have to, you have to do an internship for a year. Uh-huh. You have to, um, you have to have a, a psychological evaluation. Then uh-huh. you have to pass. Then you have to do an interview with your faculty. You have to do an interview with your synod yearly. It's actually so. A, it's quite rigorous. It's very rigorous, and I'm glad because uh-huh. I think you should be completely vetted. You have right. people's lives. In their hands. Oh, right. You, are, you know, yeah. like when a doctor's done working with you, we're the ones that get to come in. Right. And you're the most vulnerable people on the planet. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you have to have your stuff together. Yeah. So, what I loved about Wartburg, though, and it was a lot like um, the way I look at, got to know Ron, those professors, you never called them professor or doctor. They only went by the first name. Uh-huh. And they never sat in the faculty lounge. They always came and ate with us and talk to us and they treated us like colleagues from the get-go yeah. and in doing that they mirrored to us how to be a leader wow that was the probably the biggest tool that they taught us you know it, there's um I, it's different now yeah but when i went through dental school 
and all of my dental colleagues listening to this, it was a lot of hazing. And most of the instructors were ex-military. Oh, man. And uh, we were treated very roughly, I would That's say. That's crazy. Most of the instructors in the dental school had never actually practiced dentistry. Like it's those who can do, those yes, who can't, can't teach, teach, and yeah. then those who can't teach, uh, teach in the dental school. That was kind of my uh, my experience. Wow. And, and I think that was a common experience back in the day. And I've got a colleague, he went to Maryland, and a very good friend and a colleague, but he said he remembered he was rooming with a guy that was going to medical school and the two buildings were right next to each other. And from day one in the medical school, like they gave you a white coat and they called you doctor. Wow. Even though you were just a, like a first year student, wow. they called you doctor and treated you like that all the way through school. And on the dental school, they called you other names, right? Wow. And, uh, and I mean, it was a totally night and day different experience. And so, but it's not like that anymore. I, I'd hope not. I was fortunate because I wasn't raised in a tradition. So I didn't have uh, baggage of piety right. or anything. I didn't have anything. I just had me. Um, right. But a lot of people were coming from the Midwest who were well, born, yeah, born, raised, church, confirmed, raised in it, confirmed. confirmed. And your local piety is really your theology almost. Uh -huh. And so... Uh, we've been accused of like, we don't believe in the resurrection. We, that's not true at all for Lutherans, but we would be um, encouraged to read things that we didn't agree with. Uh -huh. And some people would take that as we were being taught that. Mm -hmm. And they would be really good at saying, this is what's out there. This is the stuff you need to know how to answer to without just shutting it down. Right. You need to navigate through this. And you need to have a, a, a rational, calm conversation with people right. and we need to be able to walk away from it and say, you're, you're, you're okay. You can agree to disagree. And so we would have to read books that say, you know, like the resurrection didn't happen or right. the incarnation isn't what we think it is, but that they never taught it. Right. And I think that's... You just needed to be exposed to it. We had to be exposed to it because that's what's in the world, right? right? And it actually challenges you to grow in your own faith right. to exactly. discover why you don't agree with it. Right. But these people would get all up in arms. I think, Laura, it's okay to have your faith challenged. You have to have your faith challenged. Right? Because you have to really... I don't think you really get cemented in your faith until you've until it's been challenged. Right. I don't think you're cemented in your faith till you die. Uh, probably not. Yeah. Right. And and I think because you're continually challenged throughout life. Because yeah. I mean, you look at all the things that happen and you go, wh "Why? Yeah. Why did that happen? God, why did you allow that you know, to happen? Or what is going on?" And sometimes you're angry at God, and sometimes yeah. you're like, "You know, this doesn't feel right." And you know, yeah. And and I think you weave in and out of that kind of. That's been my experience in life too, yeah. right? And so, what you were so concrete, firm believer in forty mm. years ago, are they that big a deal now? No, especially when it comes no. to cultural issues. No, and today it's like I I look at it more from I don't really understand that, right? Yeah. And I haven't walked in those shoes, shoes. so it's like I'm not going to judge them. No, right? In fact, I'm going to embrace them. You know, and I have a, a good friend in Dallas, and she was my sponsor in AA. We're opposite sides of the political spectrum, right. but it's amazing that when we sit down and have coffee. We agree on way more oh, than yeah. we disagree. Oh, yeah. And 
And it makes me wonder, well, who's profiting by us all yelling at each other? Because if we actually Somebody all sat is. down right. and talked and allowed right. us, you know, and instead of take, take all the labels away yeah, and have a conversation, you would find out we have actually more in common with each other and the same goals and the same hopes and same the same desires, dreams. Same dreams. Yeah. And, and worldwide. World, yeah. Like when, when yeah. you go to other countries and you think, well, yeah. They're you know, this. You, yeah, you have this idea of them. And then you sit on and talk with the, the, the people. Yeah. And it's like, they're just like us. And they, they, they want, just want... They just want to have a... They want to have a place to live. They want a home. They want to be able to eat. They want to have some... Be safe. Be safe. They want to raise children and have a happy life. And yeah. I mean, it's they just They want simple. clean water. Clean they want water. clean air. They you want know, clean things. Basic stuff. You, you just wonder who's... You do know who's making the money off of us yelling yeah. at each other, yeah, yeah, and you know yeah. who's getting the power from it. But that's the one thing also as a pastor I've learned. Uh -huh. I don't give a rat's about anybody's politics. Yeah. And yeah. most people could probably guess mine. Thanks for listening to part one of my conversation with Pastor Laura O'Brien. In part two, Laura and I will be talking a little more about her life as a pastor, what books outside of the Bible have influenced her, and how we can leave the world better than when we found it. Around here, we aim to inspire and create connections. We can't do it without you. If this conversation moved you, made you smile, or scratched that little itch of curiosity today, please share it with the extraordinary people in your life. And if you do one thing today, let it be extraordinary. Extraordinary.